Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I'm getting a massage sitting upright and the masseuse was massaging my neck and collarbone and she finds a lymph node on my collarbone and she just said, hey, you're not supposed to have swollen lymph nodes on your collarbone. You can have them on your neck, which you're fighting an infection, but it's a little weird to have one on your collarbone. So I definitely would go get that checked out. And so I was like, okay, I didn't really think anything of it. And then walking to my general practitioner, he just feels my neck and collarbone, feels the lymph node, and he goes, holy shit, this might be cancer. I had gotten two opinions, and a friend said, go see this guy at St. John's. He's a radiologist, oncologist. And I was like, I really don't want to go see another doctor. Thank God I did, just like I'm thankful for the masseuse, very much so, to find that lymph node, because I never would have found it probably myself. But the radiologist had the report knew that was an early stage of Hodgkin's and sat me down and said, are you happy? Hello there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show. If this is your first time here, you are in for a treat. I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who have heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've benefited from their movement. My guest today is Alyssa Goodman. So Alyssa was living the American dream. She had an awesome job at Vogue magazine, very prestigious. She was married. She was in love. And then one day she was getting a massage and the massage therapist noticed that Alyssa had a lump on her collarbone and the therapist suggested that Alyssa get it checked out. Turns out Alyssa had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is cancer, and she was only 32 years old. She found that When she was going to the doctors, they were dealing with her in a pretty callous way. And meanwhile, her inner guidance was telling her to pass on the doctor's recommendation of chemotherapy and radiation and all the conventional approaches. And instead, Alyssa felt drawn to experiment with therapy, yoga, meditation, eating more alkaline foods and juicing. And this is before health and wellness became this huge, you know, multi-billion dollar platform. So Alyssa was really taking a leap of faith here. And fortunately, she went on that route of the alkaline food and the meditation and the therapy. And she ended up healing herself from cancer. And it was the first time in her life that she had taken control of how her life was going. And cut to 12 years later, her husband 
ended up getting diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And unfortunately, he ended up passing away, which left Alyssa to be a single widowed mom of two daughters. And she was recognizing that she was having this calling to help other people who were going through cancer. So she quit her job and she went back to school. She went to the University of Complementary Medicine in Los Angeles. And Alyssa started working as a holistic nutritionist and lifestyle expert. And then later she developed a cleanse that became very popular using soups and juices to help other people who were battling with cancer. And she created a popular online cleanse for people who didn't live locally. And that one was called Cleanse Your Body, Cleanse Your Life. And she wrote a best-selling book called Cancer Hacks. And now she's got all of that going. Plus, she's got a very robust website where she lists all of her cleanse, her healthy recipes, and tons of other resources for anyone to optimize their health and to fight cancer if that's what they are in the process of doing. Alyssa's mission is to educate and encourage healthy, mindful living while helping others embrace the concept that we are very much a product of what we eat and how we treat ourselves. So this was a very insightful conversation. And whether you know someone who has cancer, whether you have cancer or not, I still think you're going to get a lot of value out of listening to it because it's really a story about someone taking charge of their life, someone taking a leap of faith, and someone who has realized that what they think and how they live their life actually matters when it comes to their mental, physical, and spiritual health. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Miss Alyssa Goodman. Alyssa Goodman, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to see you. We were just saying the last time we saw each other was in Atlanta at one of those wellness festivals. And I was thinking back when we first crossed paths and I didn't know you at the time. Somebody invited me to your book launch at Platform. Remember? Wow. Remember that back in uh, 2016 or something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I came. That was my first time at Platform. Cause I was going to do an event there and they wanted me to see how people were using the space. Right. And that's the first time I knew about you and knew about your work and all of that. And then later on, I was on your back when it was focus TV on your yes. show on focus TV. And so we've obviously crossed paths many times in that LA wellness scene. Right. And here we are. Here we, we are, are again. To sit down. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're someone that is, you know, near and dear to my heart because the minute I met you, I think a lot of people feel this way. They just feel at ease and they just, you know, you just want to pour your heart out to you. <laughs> oh. Because <laughs> you're such a gentle soul. You really, you really are. So, I mean, I'm sure you get that a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I've heard that once or twice. I'll receive that. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thanks for coming on. We're going to go into your story. You obviously have a very compelling story, very human story. And you're one of those, quotes regular people who was able to convert one of their biggest life challenges into purpose, into a larger purpose. 
and I equate purpose with service, right? So if you're not being of service in some way, then you're you're not fully in your purpose because I haven't seen any examples where being in your purpose did not involve helping people <laughs> in some kind of positive, affirmative way. So I wanted to start back at the beginning, early, early, early days. What did your family call you when you were little? Alyssa or little Alyssa? Liss. I don't know where. Yeah, that's so interesting. I don't love that name. Liss. Is that, you know, so little Liss. Did you have siblings? I had an older brother. He's three years okay. older. So, so, so when you were back, very much a what? A protector. Beautiful. So little Liss back in, I don't know if you're in Arizona or somewhere else, but when you think back, to your childhood, did you have a favorite toy or activity that you remember? Absolutely. I was a horseback rider. So we oh. actually had a barn on our property and I had a horse and I had chickens and roosters and rabbits and the whole gamut. So I loved animals and I adored horses. And it was so fun to be able to ride my horse up into the mountains when I was young, you know, and I was too young to drive, of course, or pretty kind of too young to go on my own. But my mom would let me go on my own up in the mountains in Arizona and Phoenix and on bareback on my horse. It was pretty cool. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. For those of us who have never really been around horses in an intimate situation, riding bareback and all that, what did you get from that experience? Why was that your favorite activity? I mean, horses just, they spoke to me. I mean, you know how there's horse equine therapy. I felt very alone as a kid. The horse really filled that space for me. The horse was my friend, my best friend. And I felt like that horse gave me so much love and kindness. And also riding on the horse gave me so much support. This horse is so strong. 
and loving at the same time. I thought that was pretty cool. I had that freedom. Like mm-hmm. I got to get out of the house and, you know, be out of my environment and be out in nature, as you know, which is huge these days. I'm embarrassed to say the horse's name because it was <laughs> Nuggles. That's Nuggles? As as, that's as bad as Little Lists. Snuggles and Little Lists. I love that. You've described your parents in your book and other interviews as very type A, right? So what were some of those type A philosophies and and ideologies that you remember them echoing to you and your older brother when you all were, were younger? Yeah, that was, you know, you basically get up and you have a to-do list. No matter how long Mm -hmm. that to-do list is, you are going to get everything done on that. You're going to cross off everything on your to-do list. So it was a Mm -hmm. failure at the end of the day, if you didn't do that. There was a lot. There was, you know, you don't sleep a lot of hours. You don't ever sleep in. So they would get up at 5 a.m., work out, start their day. You know, my brother and I were still in bed by 9 a.m. And that would be, you know, not okay. So it was a constant, you're constantly going. And also they were very, very social. And so every night was, you were doing something and meeting people and connecting with people, which I still think is very cool and very important, but every night was a lot. Because they really felt like the more people you know, the more people you meet, the more success you can have. Because you never know what's going to come up with who you interact with. But it was, a, it was a lot of pressure to be social. I'm not sure I'm a, such a, after COVID, I know I'm not a social person, but I'm an introvert. And I had to become an extrovert. So I had to work overtime to be social with people. They're very financially successful. So that money was always in the picture. So were they grooming you to become an entrepreneur or to be president of the United States or to be an astronaut? Or what was their idea of success for you and your brother? It was an entrepreneur. They were grooming me to be in the business my dad was in. He was in advertising marketing. Mm -hmm. And it was that business and to be an entrepreneur in that business and be successful as much as possible. Sounds like a great life. You have ranch, you got horses, you got chickens, you got wealth, you got <laughs> parents who are there supporting you and pushing you and all of that. From your perspective, right? Not realizing that maybe you thought everybody lived like that. I don't know. But what did you feel inside while you were going through all of that? It's such a great question. You're right. It From the outside, it looked like I had it all. And I had did, you know, people love my parents and they were successful. So we did have, you know, a lot of opportunities at our fingertips, but inside the house, it was very controlling, very restricting. We couldn't voice how we were feeling about things if it didn't model what they felt, you know, or what they thought. So I was very independent as a kid and very vocal. So I was constantly getting into trouble. It was the doghouse days, you know, she actually had a doghouse of dogs and then she put my dog in the doghouse. And I was just like, I'll never forget that. Always seeing this board, this funny ass board with these dogs and me in the doghouse all the time. So it felt very defeating. I always, I never felt like I could get ahead of the game with them because I was, I couldn't play the game. I didn't want to. 
So that was a struggle. So as a teenager, your mom would take you to this ranch, oftentimes against your will, but then you, you, would, you would kind of get into it after a few days. Talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, Rancho La Puerta was ahead of its time in those days because that was in the 70s. My mom had asthma, so she went twice a year and took a group of ladies. And she actually took me more so to get me away from my environment because I was a little bit of a radical kid, you know, went out too late at night, had a boyfriend. No, just I was an experimenter. And to this day, I still am. And like I said, I'm so I'm very independent and very headstrong. So she'd take me to the ranch with all these older women to get away from my boyfriend and what was going on in the Phoenix life in high school world. And I was tortured and miserable. There's no phone at the ranch, one phone for everybody. So I could never make a call to anybody. But it was, you're right, after a few days, this place is really magical. You get up and you hike and you eat food that's grown there and it's plant-based food. And I never felt well most of my life, as you know. Mm -hmm. So going there did give me the reprieve that I didn't know that I needed, you know, going off the grid and not communicating with my friends or my boyfriend and, and actually hearing some great speakers talking about health and wellness, even though I was a little too early for me as a teenager, but I didn't know that that might groom me for later. And there was massages and all kinds of meditation, yoga, there was all kinds of great stuff. And I did love to exercise in those days. So there were times that I, that I really did love it, but a lot of times it wasn't my choice to go. But I guess, thank God I did, because here I am as a wellness professional, and I do take a lot of what I learned in those early years. You know, I took it with me. So when I grew up, we were in Alabama, right? Small town and I would say our main consideration when mealtime came around was, was it taste like, right? <laughs> we ate for taste or we ate to get full or, you know, there were six of us. So we would eat for economy. Like, you know, we got a three piece meal from Kentucky fried chicken or whatever. There was like liters of soda every day being consumed, juice out the box, you know, concentrated juice, things like that. Was diet outside of this ranch environment when you were back home, was, was diet a thing in your house? Was, was that something that was even considered? Like we used to put sugar on frosted flakes because they weren't sweet enough. So what, what were you guys eating? Wow. Thinking about diet? Wow. And look at you now, the healthiest. Could be, I would right? get sick a lot. I would have headaches a lot. Yeah. I would have no idea why my nose was always running. I always had a headache. Diet. We, she took sugar out of the house very early because of her asthma. And so, you know, I'd go to friends' houses to dive into their candy jars and, you know, their processed food and chips and things like that. We didn't have a lot of that stuff. She did bake a lot of home-baked things and make homemade food. We did have really overall very good, healthy food. So that was definitely a plus. But when you're a teenager and you don't have access to some of the stuff your friends do, you tend to go a little crazy when you do get access to it. So I did that to my girls as well. And wow, that was the worst thing I could have done. Because again, they did the same thing. When they went elsewhere, they're like, sugar, 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 and give me those crappy Cheetos. You mentioned you got sick a lot. Why do you suppose you were getting sick all the time? 
Well, I remember as a kid, my white blood cell count was low. They had tested because I was getting sick all the time. They tested my white blood cell count and it was low. So in those days, they didn't really know what to do about building an immune system, balancing an immune system. All they would say is, you know, like get some sleep, get enough sleep. So, you know, I was always stressed really growing up because of kind of the environment that I was living in. And I was always overcompensating for everything, even with my schoolwork, because I was always tired and never really felt like I was thriving. So I wasn't sleeping that well. And I wasn't getting, and if I'd go out with my friends and stay out late, I would get sick the next day. So I think my immune system just wasn't strong and nobody really knew what to do about that. I mean, I was trying to eat as healthy as possible, but that was the only thing that I had or get to bed as early as possible. But as more as a teenager, that was difficult, of course. What were your aspirations? I know you wanted to get out of Phoenix as quickly as possible. (laughs) What were you thinking you wanted to do with your life? after having experienced, you know, however you grew up and thinking about the possibilities? Well, I just always knew that there was a big world, you know, outside of Phoenix. I mean, my dad was really successful in the city, so everybody knew who he was. So I felt like I lived a little bit in a glass bubble. And every move I made, people knew what was happening. So I wanted to get out of there just so I could be independent in terms of people not knowing me and I could do whatever I wanted without being called out for it. I always knew that I had the inner strength to go out to a big city and experience other people's cultures and diversity. And also in terms of culture and the arts, Phoenix was very small town and I did love people and I did love, you know, meeting new and interesting and diverse people. And I didn't really get to do that as I was growing up. And then my aspirations, I didn't really probably know what my aspirations were, but I went into the advertising business when I left and went to New York because of my dad. And I know that I did love it for a while because it is pretty exciting. You know, you get to work it with all different kinds of brands and you, it's never dull. You know, you get to see what everybody's doing. It's an exciting business to be in. So when you got to New York, right, and now you're an adult, you're a full-grown woman, what were you doing that you felt like you couldn't do? and Or how were you expressing yourself in the way that you felt like you couldn't when you were growing up? Oh, do I, am I supposed to answer this question? I mean, you know, my... Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That is like telling a lot of bad things that I've done. I was like a party girl. So I definitely stayed out really late, went to the clubs. I party a lot. And then, of course, got sick all the time. But I absolutely love New York. I just love the eclecticness of what New York had to offer. So I was in heaven, basically. But I did party a lot. Hard. And is that how you met Mark at a club or something? Or how, yeah. <laughs> what was the cute meat behind, I, I know. behind meeting Mark? I met my husband. Work, we worked together. That was a little crazy. I was, uh, it was sales for TV advertising for small, medium markets across the country. And so he was a salesperson and I was like, I become, I was an intern growing into a salesperson. So we met at work. Like Mad Men energy, like a little, like it wouldn't be, (laughs) it would be be written up today. 
Totally. Yeah. It was definitely like that. I mean, that whole show is what I experienced very much so in that world. I didn't know any different or better. It wasn't really that safe in terms of how people treated each other. But anyway, I was strong enough to get through it, but we did meet there. He was an incredible salesperson. And when we announced that we were dating, one of us had to leave the company. So he ended Mm. up leaving to, to a bigger job and a better job. So that was great for him. You know how a lot of times kids will rebel against their parents and then cut to 10, 15 years later, they turn into their parents. So what sort of traits translated over now that you became an adult and you're in the world and everything health wise, diet wise, perhaps, and maybe work ethic wise, what traits it translated over to the adult, Alyssa? Yeah, I was just going to answer that question by, I think I'm still rebelling at 62. (laughs) That's really scary. No, there was definitely a lot of, my dad was pretty amazing person. He built a communications company in the 60s and 70s into a really big company, first of its kind. So the guy had no fear. He had no fear of going into any situation. And he just thought that he could accomplish anything. So I would say that that has transferred over to me. I do have probably more fears than he did, but I do feel at the end of the day, when I tap into that and I love new situations. I love expanding what I'm doing. I love expanding what I'm learning and really making my business be the best it can be and not hold back. You know, I don't really want to hold back from anything. So I feel like that translated from him. And I think at the end of the day, I knew I could do something on my own and be independent and also build something independently and not have to work for somebody else. So that was pretty cool. And my mom was just never gave up. She was always constantly doing and giving back to the community. So I feel like, you know, that was also something that translated to me as well. I don't feel like I ever give up on things that I want to accomplish unless it just can't happen or potentially give up on people in my life. So you guys ended up getting married. You and Mark got married in love, obviously moved to Los Angeles. That's where you kind of had your, what would be a spiritual rock bottom moment. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to understand that you had cancer? Yes. So, I mean, I was getting a massage. I didn't have any symptoms, which is a little bit scary. You felt completely fine. I felt completely fine, but I have never known what completely fine is. I mean, I was always tired, always mentally foggy. You know, I always had digestive issues. I had a lot of anxiety. I probably had little bits of depression or maybe I didn't, wasn't sure if it was maybe more anxiety than depression, but I was always kind of like trudging up the hill, wondering like, am I ever going to reach the top? So that was a consistent thing my whole life. And then I'm 32 and I land this job with Vogue magazine. And I thought, wow, I just, you know, hit jackpot because I love fashion and who doesn't love Vogue? And I get the job and it really, it was Devil Wears Prada. It was one of those situations where I couldn't keep up with what they wanted me to do. Just the environment was really, really intense. 
And with what I was just explaining, you know, it was almost too much for me to bear. It was just like, holy shit, can I really do this? And then I'm getting a massage sitting upright and the masseuse was massaging my neck and collarbone. And she finds a lymph node on my collarbone. And she just said, hey, you're not supposed to have swollen lymph nodes on your collarbone. You can have them on your neck, which you're fighting an infection, but it's a little weird to have one on your collarbone. So I I definitely would go get that checked out. And so I was like, okay, I didn't really think anything of it. And then walk into my general practitioner. He just feels my neck and collarbone, feels the lymph node. And he goes, holy shit, this might be cancer. That was his response. How big I is mean, this lymph node that you're talking about? And how long was it there before you went I got don't, checked out? Because I'm so, I sink in and my collarbone, a lot of us do. You don't feel it. Do you? Do you feel mm-hmm. so? No. It was pretty good size. I don't know centimeter wise, but once I felt it, I could really feel it. So it was definitely a scary road in regards to the way he presented it, then going to the oncologist. And before the oncologist even did a biopsy on it, he's down this road of, you know, you know, we're probably going to have to talk about chemo, radiation, freezing your eggs because you haven't had kids yet. Do you have a donor? Before the biopsy? Before before the biopsy. He's talking about, Hmm. it's really crazy how doctors treat you. I mean, the fear was so intense. I would say on a scale of one to 10, of course it was a 12 because I was down the rabbit hole, not even knowing really what the final result was or not even having enough info. And then I do the biopsy and late, it comes back early stage, even to the fact they're like, we're not a hundred percent sure it's Hodgkin's lymphoma, but we're 90 something percent sure, you know, that's a whole different ball game, but they still treated it like it was a hundred percent sure it was cancer. So a friend of mine said, I had gotten two opinions and a friend said, go see this guy at St. John's. He's a radiologist, oncologist. And I was like, I really don't want to go see another doctor. Thank God I did. Just like I'm thankful for the masseuse as you know, very much so to find that lymph node because I never would have found it probably myself. But the radiologist had the report, knew that was like an early stage of Hodgkin's and sat me down and said, are you happy? What's your life like? You know, are you stressed? Do you like what you do for a living? Are you in love with your husband? Is your life good? And I was burst into tears. And I was, I don't even know what happy is. I don't know what happy feels like. I don't know if my life is good. I mean, right now it isn't good because I'm freaking out, but I really didn't even know what I was looking for. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. You know, I think my mentality was always is the grass was greener always. So I never was present in my life or my world. So I was so thick because he goes, we need to get your emotional, spiritual, mental well-being back on track so you can deal with this. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, still today, like doctors don't ask those questions. So going back to that day that you received the diagnosis, right? Knowing what you know now, what did you do well? And what could you have done better when you mm-hmm. first got that information? That's such a great question. Because it did put me into alert mode when I got the diagnosis and I used it as an excuse and a reason to really get my life in order. 
like to really see if I can figure out how to emotionally get in a more balanced place. So I did go into therapy right away, which was amazing. And I did about 13, 14 years of therapy. So that was incredible. And I started reading self-help books. I loved that. And at that time, when I look back, I'm like, holy shit, I loved all of the health world because I started doing yoga in LA and then I started juicing. But I, I walked down to Beverly Hills Juice, which was you know still there today, but there 30 years ago when I would pick up juices, fresh pressed juices. And I started to feel like alive and really energized. It was wild. I became a vegan. That was the negative thing because I didn't do it well. I didn't know how to. I really didn't know, mm. you know, the, the idea of how to get enough protein, plant-based, and also didn't get enough iron. And I think I'm an old blood type. So I think, you know, I probably, when I went back to eating a little meat, I definitely felt so much better. So I'm not sure if I could ever be a vegan in that regard. But, you know, the vegan lifestyle was hard, but I did take time for myself and I did really try to dive in and to find out like what's blocking me from not being happy and not finding peace and not being healthy. Why was I so hard on myself? What about in terms of making the announcement? Were certain people you just didn't want to tell that you tell too many people, you tell the wrong types of people or how did that play out? Oh yeah. All of the above. I think it was great to tell my job because I didn't want to be there. So that gave me a reprieve from the job to take some time off, but I didn't want to tell my mom. She's definitely overreacts and, you know, thought I was going to die. So I didn't really want that energy in my world. Friends were great people around me, but the mom was the tough one. You know, and she did. She did move in, felt like I was going to die, catastrophize things, made me more anxious, made me more nervous, made me not get myself back in my body. I'm so out of body when I'm with somebody that is, you know, has such a different vibe than or an energy than me. How do you do that, though? Because you kind of have to tell your mom that you have cancer. But if your mom is the type that overreacts, which a lot of people have that experience, I mean, my mom would be the same way. She'd be yelling at me. You need to eat this broccoli. You're going to die tomorrow. You know, so how do you manage that? You have to. Well, yeah. Is there there a better way we could, we could do that? No, I don't think there's any way around it. And only thing I know is I've had to just completely change my life in regards to, because I have two girls that how I handle them and how I respond to their things. So, you know, maybe she gave me a gift because it made me change how I respond to my girls. I try not to do that. I try to hold space for them for whatever they're going through. And I don't put my own neuroses onto them. So she gave me a gift. It was, you know, it was good that I had someone like that, that had to push me to the other side. Now, how does she feel about you declining the chemo and only doing half the radiation? Everybody was really upset with me, angry, They thought I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was trying to listen to my instincts and intuition for the first time ever. And I knew because I was never really healthy, I thought the chemo was going to just do a number on my immune system. And I didn't know how that was that I was going to come back from that. And it worried me. So the radiation wasn't much better. And as you know, I did half the radiation of what they recommended. I did have to find, my oncologist did fire me. 
he basically said, I cannot treat you because you are not following my protocol. So then I'm like, holy shit, I got to go find a doctor who's got to treat me. And I was lucky. I found an oncologist, radiologist that did treat me. And he agreed with what I wanted to do. So I guess we can always find someone that will agree with us. Was that the next person you talked to or you had to go through like 10 oncologists before you got to that guy? It was the next guy. It was, he was an older guy. I remember I loved him and he was just very gentle and he saw the blood work and he saw, you know, my cells and he just was like, you don't need to go through all that. It's too early of a stage. So let's do a little radiation Hmm. and see how you do. And I was lucky. Was he a referral from someone or you just Mm -hmm. literally random? No referral. He was a referral. So I think that's one thing that I love about myself too, is I'm really resourceful. You are too. You know, when we need something, things come up for us. I mean, people come in our, come along our path that we need, you know, when you open up to possibilities of things you really want to have happen, you and I know that, Mm -hmm. wow, all of a sudden light shows up for me or, Dr. Sam shows up for me. I mean, it's really wild how lucky we are. And we don't realize how blessed. Mm. So he did. He just, someone referred to the first doctor was referred to me and he basically was amazing. Because an oncologist is kind of like your coach. Like they're going to basically walk you through the entire healing process. So it's a really important decision who you work with, right? Yes. Yeah, you want to be able to feel like they have your back and that they're on your team, as well as you want to be able to exhale with them. Like this doctor cares. This guy really cared. It was like the oncologist, radiologist that I saw that asked me those questions about my life and how happy or how unhappy I was. I just felt like he cared. I mean, he only saw me once, but it didn't matter because I did feel like he honestly cared about me. And the radiologist that I ended up working with, I felt like he took me on as his daughter. He was definitely as old as my father. And I just felt like I could exhale and really trust him. And I think that's all part of this, of the healing process for anybody, you know, with whatever you're going through. Were all these guys covered by insurance or do you have to like... They were. I was lucky. They were covered by insurance. It's going through a cancer treatment expensive if you if even if you have insurance. How does that work? Yes. Well, not exactly out of pocket, but you know, when you see the bills rolling in of what in the insurance company's paying, it's pretty incredible. When my husband was diagnosed eleven and a half years later and he died, the year and a half of treatment was well over a million dollars. So you're drinking all this carrot juice, your palms are orange, you're yeah. meditating, you're in therapy. What was your first indication that all this was working? Well, I was feeling like I'd never felt before. I was feeling like I just had a possibility to like get to the other side of this. You know, I was feeling energized and mentally alert like I never felt before and I just felt like this was such a wake-up call for me. It was meant to happen to like 
slap me around to basically say, wake up, you know, you, you have this life, you've been given this beautiful life, you know, you got to live it. I felt so different. I just felt like I was in life living it instead of an outsider viewing it inside. Mm. So that was pretty cool. And then I did go back to work after the treatment and quickly thereafter I did quit because I knew it wasn't right for me. So I started having boundaries and standing up for myself. That was another cool thing. I was like, this isn't working for me. So Mm -hmm. I need to make a change. Was the collarbone growth, was it diminishing? Well, they actually had removed it. So it was, they removed the lymph node. Yeah. So there really wasn't other than, you know, just checking my numbers and doing an x-ray. You're right. There wasn't anything else showing up. No other lymph nodes mm-hmm. swollen. So I, you know, had to get tested for about five years after that consistently. That's not easy either. Cause when you go into the testing every year, you're, you're like, you can't breathe. You know, you're like, fuck, I hope I don't have cancer again or anything popping up. But, but I did get hypothyroidism after that cause they radiated my thyroid and then I got Hashimoto's. So, you know, it wasn't without other health issues after I did have radiation. And then I had a hard time getting pregnant. So it took me a lot to get pregnant with my first child, about, you know, four or five miscarriages. Did they end up freezing your eggs? Before? No. no, no. Yeah, we didn't have to do any of that. No, yeah, we just did half the radiation. They only radiated my upper half of my mantle, they call it. If they had radiated the lower half, we would have frozen my eggs. How long did it all take before you were given the clean bill of health? I mean, for me, it was a good two years that I felt like I, I could give myself the clean bill of health. So it took about two years. And What was your takeaway personally after like you, you really took control of your life probably for the first time ever. And so you got a really great point of reference for what that looks like versus whatever you were doing before. So what was sort of the takeaway personally, like, oh man, I should have been doing this the whole time, but I don't know what I was thinking. I should have been listening to my instincts and my intuition. I mean, my intuition and instincts were right. And we know they're always right. And I never, you know, when I would talk about them in my family or, you know, outside my family growing up, people would be like, no, that's not the way you should feel. No, that's not what you should do. You know, you know how we, you know, get that grooming. It was always, no, your instincts, no, you're not thinking right. That's not what it's, you know, supposed to feel like. You're not supposed to feel that way. And when I really got to be able to be in touch with my instincts and intuition, because I followed them during the crisis mode, when I was like, holy shit, I really do know what's right for me. That was the coolest thing ever. Why is it so hard for us to not listen to our intuition until we face our own mortality? Because we've been trained not to. I hope these days as we raise kids, we don't do that to our kids. But I think people who parents and, you know, people who are were watching over me, they felt like they knew best. And I don't think they realized that wow, this little person does have her own thoughts and her own feelings and her own instincts and intuition. And she does know what's best for her. But in those days, that isn't how we were raised. It was do what we say. You know, we know what's right because we've been through it. 
So you need to do it our way. That is such a disservice, you know, unless someone's going off the rails. But I think that mostly if you can give back the power to the person and be able to have them live in that power that they are, they do know it's best for themselves. That is the ultimate because that's, you know, that when you feel like you're in your body and you're like, okay, I know that not everyone's going to like this decision, but I know it's right for me. I mean, it's such a cool feeling. And you also then can, you don't live in a fight or flight mode. You're like, okay, like I know what's right. And I'm moving forward on my path and not having to worry about what everybody else thinks. That's a hard one. I know for a lot of us, that's when we can exhale. That's when we get off that treadmill. So if I'm a parent listening to this, you got a couple of girls, right? How do you find that balance between parenting and allowing your child to follow their own intuition? Because sometimes, you know, kids don't have the brightest <laughs> ideas about what to do in life. So how do you, how, how have you in, in a practical way done that for your kids? That is such a hard question to answer <laughs> because I didn't do so well. For many years, I felt like I stepped into, I was a little bit of a control freak and that was my mom. And so I tried to control the girls a lot in the early years. They were going to private school in LA. They were hanging out with some not such such great kids. You know, there was a lot of things available to them, alcohol and drugs, as you know, and a lot of money. So it was tricky. And I was a single parent at the time. So I was freaking out and I was driving them away because I was putting a lot of demands and control on them and they didn't like it. And they were very much independent as well. So it was not easy. It definitely wasn't easy. And now in the last four years that I have really soul searched as to how I could have a close relationship with my girls and, you know, allow them to make the mistakes themselves and learn from them and not have to pick up the pieces all the time or control what they were doing because their way is not always going to be my way, of course. Right. But, but it is their way to let go of that control in the last four years, our relationship has completely done a 180. And now I call them for the advice. <laughs> like now I'm the one who, I'm like, what do I do about this? What do I, I mean, it's so wild to have such beautiful women in my life and they're my friends. And sometimes it can be a little, probably too close, but they have such good instincts and intuition. And so I was lucky that I was able to, but I had to dig deep. I had to go really deep into therapy. Like I mentioned earlier, before we talked on this call, I had to do some plant medicine journeys to soul search on why I was so controlling and so fearful of some, what was going to happen to them. And, you know, sort of living in that just fear-based mode. And I had to do a lot of soul searching. And when I finally got to a place where I saw that everybody was going to be okay, that if I could let go of the the reins with them, they were going to grow up and be strong, beautiful women that really didn't need me. And that was the ultimate. You know, I think that as parents, we want them to need us. Yeah, it's sad that they don't need me. I have to say it sucks. But I think at the end of the day, I can say, wow, I'm so grateful that 
I'm raising girls that will can go out into the world and God forbid, if something happens to me, they will be fine. Going back to you just healed yourself right now. I want to ask from the perspective of a spouse, because you have, again, a very unique perspective because your spouse ended up getting diagnosed many years later. But if my spouse is diagnosed with cancer, what's the best way I can show up for them during their healing process? That was a really scary, scary time. My husband's dad died of cancer when he was mel- when he was two of melanoma. So I think that the idea of cancer for him was that he could die. Now, people were saying to me when I had cancer that, you know, I could die, but I didn't think so. So I could really say wholeheartedly that I didn't think I was going to die. I thought mm-hmm. this was a fucked up thing that was happening, but I think that his fear was so intense and ingrained because of his dad dying when he was so young that it was really hard to get him out of fear-based mode. So I kept trying to go more of a holistic route with him, but he just kept going back to the Western route because he was so fear-based. He didn't want to do acupuncture or juicing or yoga or any of that stuff. And I knew he was stressed. I knew his central nervous system was pretty much on high alert. And it always had been since I met him. He loved sugar. He had a jar of sugar in his office. I'm not saying sugar totally gives you cancer, but he just was like, he didn't eat the healthiest. He was a huge animal protein eater, loved sugar, was stressed out to the max and was driving himself into the ground because he just wanted to be successful. He definitely had everything it took to be successful and he didn't have to work so hard, but he definitely was on that path. And then he listened to the doctors, the Western way religiously. So he just felt like none of the holistic stuff or, you know, trying to get him energy healing or any of that was going to make it better for him. So he ended up having two bone marrow transplants and we were in and out of the hospital for a year and a half. It's really unheard of to do two bone marrow transplants. As you know, they take you down to nothing and in a year and a half. So he ended up dying of fungal pneumonia because his immune system was so compromised. The cancer didn't kill him. It was the treatment that killed him. It was definitely scary to watch a strong man just wither away in such a short amount of time. And to see what the Western medicine did to him. I'm not against Western medicine. But I imagine it must have been frustrating for you having healed yourself with these natural and some Western, but also a lot of alternative modalities to watch that and to kind of be the supportive spouse during that process. So how, how did you kind of come to terms with that? Did you have to get to a point where you just surrendered to the whole thing and just loved him for who he was and for what he wanted? I think I was frustrated. So I can't say I was fantastic during the process because it frustrated me. He wouldn't listen to me. And I had healed myself from some of this. Yeah, but, you're like this war uh, vet coming back. <laughs> you just defeated a whole army by yourself. You're like Rambo, right? In cancer. Right. And then right. I'm like, he's going into battle. And you're like, look, you're going to need a grenade. You're going to need a knife. You're going to need all these things. And he's like, no, I don't need any of that. Yeah, that was difficult. And it was really challenging and sad. And but there was nothing I could do. So you're right. I had to surrender and, you know, just love him for 
for going down this route and ho- and praying, hoping that he could he would make it. And never imagining in a million years like that he would die at 45. Never. Too young, too strong, like before the process started. And he was pretty like resilient through the process. I mean, he did some pretty crazy things. I mean, during one of the transplants, he escaped the hospital and and was in a wheelchair and went down to a Starbucks to get a coffee. You know, I mean, nobody even stopped him. I mean, he wasn't even supposed to be out of the hospital. He was a crazy guy. He just... He got in his wheelchair and rolled down to Starbucks, like was a block away and came back. And everybody was like, oh, my God, you know, he wasn't supposed to be out of the hospital at all. So so we all thought this guy's going to live because he had the will to live and the determination to live. And it's been like it'll be 17 years this this year. And it's it still is unbelievable that he died and that we don't have him with us. And it's just I still think to myself, I wish there were alternatives that I could have helped him with. What do you think the spiritual lesson is for you from having gone through that? Because you guys basically have the same kind of cancer. What do you think that was? Assuming that there is like a such thing as a spiritual contract. Yeah. In these 17 years, have you had an epiphany like, oh, that's what that was about? Absolutely. The two of us were very similar. We didn't feel good enough. We didn't feel like we measured up in our prospective families or even maybe outside the family. So we were always working overtime to like prove ourselves that we were good enough and enough. And, you know, we just were overpleasing. And just, I think that we never gave ourselves a break. We never knew how to love ourselves. I don't think either one of us loved ourselves, which was really sad, you know, cause I don't, feel like I found love for myself till I was 58, four years ago. Um, I didn't even know what that felt like. I just always was told that was selfish to say you loved yourself, but it isn't, you know, it's self-preservation to love yourself. And so you can just like be able to really honor who you are, but I don't think either of us honored who we were. I don't think we felt like we were enough and we were overachieving and trying to, you know, overcompensate for everything. And we were working ourselves to the bone. And I think that that was the spiritual lesson is that I always wish I could go back and be like, wow, I wish I had learned that I was enough and that I didn't have to work so hard and that I didn't have to please everybody. And that, I could listen to my instincts and my intuition and be like, wow, that's right. But I questioned it like crazy. And I just felt like my head was spinning all the time. And I think the same for him. I think that he just drove himself, never let up from the gas pedal. And it was a little crazy. We had built this beautiful house in Hancock Park when he was, he, you know, after he was going through this, we had built this beautiful house and a friend of mine actually said, you know, I want to come over with EMF machine to see, like, I, she just thought it was really kind of strange about him getting this cancer. So she came over and found on his side of the bed, this was pretty wild. The EMFs were off the charts. So what that means is potentially, you know, when we remodeled this old house that the wiring in the walls weren't grounded. I'm not sure if that was the case, but there was something, you know, there was an electronic magnetic frequency that was going off 
on his side of the bed, which was really fascinating when she did that. When she did when she did the whole house, it was in the family room where we sat watching TV mostly and on that side of the bed of his. Mm-hmm. But on my side, there wasn't that same frequency level. So you're widowed now, you're single mom, kids seven and 10, assuming you probably have some life insurance or something like that from your husband or whatever. So you may be in a good financial situation or a stable one. What was the plan? What are you going to do? How are you going to, are you going to make lemons out of this crazy, crazy situation or lemonade out of this crazy situation? You're right. I was completely freaked out because he was the breadwinner. Yes, I did have life insurance. Yes, I was kind of taken care of in a lot of respects, but I really didn't know if I had to go back to work. You know, I didn't really ever imagine myself being a single parent that scared the shit out of me. And at the time, you know, I had two girls and I was a little frantic, like I was saying earlier about raising two girls in LA and and being a single parent and being in this private school arena. I mean, it just, it felt intense. Again, I had put myself into this kind of intense, do I want to keep up? Do I need to keep up with the Joneses? All of that. So I was definitely freaked out. And um, I was also exhausted from that year and a half of trying to keep him alive and also trying to keep my life going. Um, So it took me a couple of years really to get myself physically back together And I was okay for those two years, like financially. But then I thought to myself, you know, I don't really want to just be a single mom and not go back to work and not do something to give back to the community or just do something that that's when that whole idea of like, I can make something of my own came up. And a friend of mine said, Hey, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'm really interested. I really want to get healthy. First of all, I need to get stronger and healthier. I don't want my girls to feel like they had two parents that had cancer, that they're automatically going to get cancer. So how can I get the three of us healthy? And she recommended this school. It wasn't the Institute of Integrative Nutrition that everybody goes to. It was something local in Beverly Hills. It was Eastern and Western medicine. It was Ayurvedic, Chinese supplements, herbal remedies, a little bit of spiritual work, trauma work. It went on for two years in person. And I went to that just to get healthy, just myself. And I started to like really enjoy it and started to make some healthier changes around the house and food wise and I just, and also emotionally, mentally, I started to take some supplements that were really working. You know, remember the E3 Live in those days? Like that was a miracle worker when I started taking that so many years ago, but that I'd have the energy again and got myself back on track. And then when I graduated from that program, Cafe Gratitude had come down from San Francisco and opened their first restaurant here. And my friend, Lisa Bombright, who had opened up the restaurant, you know, basically said, Hey, will you come and put a food program together for us? And because she knew I had the marketing advertising background from my early days, New York and LA, when I lived here before I stopped working, she basically said, let's put this together. And it was amazing. It was just like, 
I put this food program together. It was really easy to do because their food was so healthy and nutritious. And then also with my advertising marketing background, I knew how to market it. And then everything just took off. I started loving talking to the clients, handholding them through the five days of this program. They all had different ailments. And then I started working with functional integrative doctors to find out how to help them with these ailments. I have a quick question about this. Because this is amazing, right? You got this amazing opportunity. I've heard you say in another interview, you didn't think you were qualified to do this cleanse, right? So not feeling fully qualified, fresh out of school. These guys are just here for the first time, first location. Financially, was that a big thing? Like, okay, we have to come up with some deal that makes sense or you just want to get experience or what, what was that thinking like when, when this whole thing was coming about? I just wanted experience. I didn't know that it would grow into this, of course, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to become a nutritionist. Mm-hmm. So, But I just wanted the experience. I wanted to be doing something. And like I said earlier, I wanted to be giving back. I never felt good as a kid growing up, you know, a lot of health issues that we didn't mention, but cancer, then my husband dying of cancer. And I just felt like, and then overcoming all of that and then starting to feel really good and energized and feel better than I had felt in all the years growing up. I just felt like, wow, I think that people could use some of this insight and also I just love people in general. I love helping people. So when I started with gratitude and got to talk to these cleansers and find out some of their story, it was like, wow, their story is like my story. It was similar. There was in a lot of ways, emotionally, physically, there was a lot of things going on for them. That's why they were turning towards this cleanse or this food program to feel better. You know, and then a year into Cafe after Cafe Gratitude, and Cafe hired me to do their macrobiotic reset. And that was a little bit more of how I ate. So that was really exciting too, because I wasn't a total vegan, as you know, and I wasn't totally raw, but I did eat cooked and more pescatarian and tofu and tempeh and things like that. So that I did that for many, many years, and I got to handhold those people as well. So I got a lot of firsthand experience with handholding the cleansers on both of those cleanses. And it was really fun finding out all their, and also they would send me their blood work. I didn't know what I was looking at at the time, but it was pretty cool to kind of just go over it with the doctors that I, friends of mine. You eventually came up with your own sort of concoction, right? Some little tonic or elixir. I remember having some of that at your book launch. Yeah. So I, I had done an air one cleanse too, but that was very short lived. And I came up with some juices for air one as well, which was really fun. There's still one juice in air one that is named the Elysium and thyroid juice. It isn't exactly my formula, but it's kind of fun to be there as you know, cause air one so cool. But then I actually, my assistant at the time was an incredible cook. And a lot of my, then when I was seeing, started to see clients, they're like, Hey, could you put together a food program for us? And then I realized hmm, this might not be so hard. Maybe I can put a program together and take what I know from gratitude and M cafe and Erewhon and put it together and actually do my own food delivery program. And that's how the cleanse started. You know, we're in our eighth year now, which is so wild. So yeah, I basically definitely started to 
concoct soup salads and things that I loved, food that I loved, things that had helped me get better. And then to be able to do this program and feed and nourish and nurture people at that very root level was the coolest thing I could ever do in my life. How did the book deal for Cancer Hacks come about? I self-published Cancer Hacks. Oh, so, okay. Awesome. Yeah, that is how, that's how it came about. So I self-published my first book too. So t- oh, talk did? about that process. Cause I, <laughs> yeah, it, it took me like almost four years to get this thing out. <laughs> that's, that's basically what happened with me too. I mean, it was a good two, three years to get it going. I mean, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So, but I had written a cancer hack PDF for my site And I realized that that could grow into something. So I basically decided that I needed a book. I wanted a book because I wanted to tell our story. I wanted to have people know what I did right and wrong during my journey and as well as my husband's. I thought that could be something that would be really helpful. And so Mm. it was a long process. It was a very hard process, not easy at all. I don't think writing a book is easy, period. I guess you probably agree it can be hard because this one right now is hard. It's pro-aging hacks because I feel like I've been able to turn back the biological clock that I want people to know that they can live into their older years and feel better than they did earlier in their life. But yeah, that was a hard process, but it was cool. It was cool that I, I'm glad I self-published. I'm glad I got a book out there. It feels good to have people know my story as well as you know, just some of the tidbits that did help me. And I think it's helped others as well. Can we just walk through the basics of the beginning stages of the process in case someone is listening to this and they got diagnosed and we want them obviously to get a hold of your book and, and maybe to, I don't know if you have cleanses that you ship out or something, but what are some of the things that people should do if they get diagnosed with maybe early stage cancer in the same way that you, you were diagnosed? Well, I would have to say when you're diagnosed, I mean, there is one book that I absolutely love beside my own. It's called Radical Remission. You probably know those books, Radical Remission, Radical Hope, Kelly Turner. That's a book you've got to pick up. I tell all my cancer clients to do that because I think there's such a huge psychological component to cancer and, and any of these illnesses. I think that the stress and the trauma that we go through in those early years, I always talk about the first seven years, your subconscious is fully downloaded. So I, when I talk to my cancer clients, they did have mostly trauma in their first seven years. No one ever asked them that question. They're always like, wow, that is an interesting question, but death, divorce, friends, betraying them, you know, just, there was a lot of things that go on that are in your subconscious. And you know, those thought patterns just recirculate and they downregulate your immune system. So I feel like psychologically, that's a big component. We need to get you back into that place of, you know, you can overcome this cancer. Cancer is not a death sentence, but we need you to believe that you can do that. I think that is first and foremost, You know, I have intuitive healers that I work with that actually can dig into the subconscious and unblock some of those thought patterns that aren't working for you anymore and like remove them and also give you mantras that can get you past some of those negative patterns that we get ourselves in. So I think that is huge for cancer. I think if we believe we can get past anything, we actually can. 
And then I think it's all about, it's all about changing your diet, going on an anti-inflammatory diet, being more plant-based. We don't eat enough vegetables. We don't get enough nutrients at our cellular level. Our guts are not healthy these days. So we're not breaking down our food to absorb our vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, polyphenols, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's why I've always been a big juicer and I love juicing. I juice greens. I don't put any fruit in my greens or in my juices because there's too much sugar, but because we get enough sugar, but I love getting greens into my system, into my bloodstream, into my cells at a cellular level. I think that's a game changer. It's a beautiful thing. It also lowers inflammation. It lowers viral loads, bacterial loads in your body. So I think it gives you more of a fighting chance. It helps with, you know you know, building that immunity. What's that place down in San Diego where you can go for three weeks and they'll give you the whole playbook on how to juice and how to do clonics and all of those things. It's not oh, the Omega it's, Institute. Or Optimal what, Health. Optimal, optimal yeah, health? yeah, yeah. The Institute of Optimal Health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you ever? I've never any- done it. You know, our friend Jenny Emblem has done that, but no, I've I've never done that. I feel like, All of that stuff is fantastic. I think all of it is pretty amazing to be able to go to a place to be taken care of and to get your head straight. I think that, you know, when you are diagnosed with something like this, you need a timeout in your life. And it's kind of hard when you're still living your life. I think there needs to be some time to regain your trust of yourself and your body. So speaking of which, let's say you you know you're not particularly well off, you're having to work, right? Are one of these cleanses is that realistic to be able to do or fit in, or do they have to, they have to come up with their own sort of version of that by going to Piggly Wiggly's or whatever the local grocery store is? Like the how, do you give a, I know you have a thing that people can download with easy recipes. Talk about that. Yeah, no, I have a seven day reset. It's a very similar to the soup cleanse that people from outside of LA can download and do themselves. It's a very easy program. It just talks about getting nutrients into your body, lowering inflammation, you know, building your immune system, really rebalancing your gut. You can do easy things to get yourself back on track. And if you don't have money, there are some easy things that you could do. Even juicing, you can get a juicer that isn't expensive or a blender and juice things like celery, cucumber, lemon, ginger, and that's super powerful and strong and not expensive. So there are definitely things that people can do when they don't have the money. I was telling somebody the other day, I think it was another podcast conversation. I was like, making the choices to live your life in alignment with what you feel is your purpose intuitively is your health insurance. Like that is a major part of your health insurance. If you're not doing that, then you're making yourself susceptible. And we get caught up in the prices of organics and the prices of having hobbies and oh, I don't want to spend time doing that, but you, you don't realize how beneficial it is to your health when you do make those kinds of choices. And it's money you don't have to spend down the line on, you know, like you say, your husband's treatment was a million dollars. Like that's expensive to have to deal with not living your purpose. That's an expensive choice to make. That's why I'm so grateful for people like yourself, you know, I mean, meditation apps. I mean, even people who are coaches who are empowering people to do that. We didn't have that years ago. Even I feel like when we started in this business, even probably you would say the same. 
you were probably very early to the meditation world, right? And really get helping people empower themselves. That was not that long ago. But thank God for that today. Like there are a lot of people who are pretty stellar at helping people, you know, regain the trust of themselves and and the power. And thank God for, I always say, you know, for me, I know in the last four years of doing the ayahuasca and psilocybin and plant medicine, you know, I got to see that I was going to be okay. And on my journeys with that, I got to rewire my brain into thinking, you know, I am going to be okay. I can get through anything. And yes, life is not going to be easy. I don't, I know that, but I will get through it. And to have that inner strength is the best gift you could ever give yourself. And you're right. It is your insurance policy. I think that's when my thyroid went back into alignment. That's when my Hashimoto's went into remission. You know, that's when my health really elevated. I did a biological test, an age test, and I'm 62 and it came back 51.4. So I was like, Ooh, I'm doing something right here. But I think through my diet and my supplements and my lifestyle, my meditation, my yoga, you know, my journeys, I know that's a lot, but they've all helped me turn back the clock and really step into my power and not an ego power, but a power of, wow, I can heal and I can get past anything. Last two questions. What is the biggest misconception that people have about you having gone through everything you've gone through and and representing what you represent now? And number two, how are you thinking about success these days? I heard someone say the other day, a friend of mine who follows me on Instagram, and she was out to lunch with some ladies and they said, why is she always so happy? She's always so happy on Instagram. And I hate Instagram. (laughs) I'm like, it's 62. Do I have to freaking be on Instagram? You know, I'm not always happy, but I would say overall, I do feel really happy that I was able to overcome the things I had going on in my life. My life was so not easy. I think the misconception is my life was easy and it was smooth sailing. Just like what you said earlier, you know, my family life, you know, we were successful and it looked like we had it all, but underneath it, it wasn't that same story. And it's not never been that same story. It was a lot of hard work to overcome, you know, the things that I had to, to get my head straight. So I think that's the misconception. And I do genuinely feel happy these days because I overcame all that mostly. And I do know how to get myself out of those sad spots and those dark spots quicker than I did in my earlier years. The answer to your second question, success these days is I'm really hoping to expand what I know in terms of getting this next book done, Pro-Aging Hacks, I really want people to age gracefully and have the energy in their later years because we have a lot of years to live, 20, 30 years, I hope for myself. And I don't want to be ill and I don't want to have these ailments holding me back. I do want to live my life in a very vibrant, thriving way. So I'm hoping that's going to be my success. It doesn't have anything to do monetarily, interestingly. It's just about, again, helping people get to a place where they know that they can live a really vibrant, energized life and healthy life. And also not be afraid of illnesses, that if they do get an illness, they will be able to overcome it. Well, I just want to wrap this conversation up by looping back around to childhood and to Nuggles, especially, because when someone gets diagnosed with cancer, 
snuggles. Snuggles. <laughs> snuggles. When someone gets, gets diagnosed with cancer, that could be a very lonely experience to have facing your own mortality that way. And, you know, I feel like today what you're doing is what snuggles essentially did for you is giving you a way to feel supported, to feel strong and to feel free. And so I just want to acknowledge you for stepping into your purpose and your path and giving us all the gift of that same support, freedom and strength through your work and your dedication to helping people understand like this is not a death sentence. This is something that you can heal yourself from if you just believe. And so keep writing, keep doing what you're doing, keep posting, keep speaking, keep showing up. And you'll keep inspiring all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you again for tuning into my conversation with Alyssa Goodman. You can pick up a copy of her book, Cancer Hacks, everywhere books are sold. And you should also follow Alyssa on social media at Alyssa Goodman. That's E-L-I-S-S-A-G-O-O-D-M-A-N. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, we've got an incredible archives of past interviews with luminaries like Ed Milet, director Ava DuVernay, spoken word artist Saul Williams, war of art author Stephen Pressfield, chef Marcus Samuelson, and many others who share how they discovered their path and their purpose. You can also search my past interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. If you go to that page, you'll see at the top of the page is a drop down menu where you can look at episodes by specific subjects like people who've taken leaps of faith, people who've overcome financial struggles, people who've navigated health challenges, et cetera, et cetera. You can also watch these podcast interviews on my YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast, you'll see a list of all of the episodes and you can finally put a face to a story. And if you love hearing unedited versions of podcasts, you can sign up on thehappinessinsiders.com and you can access all of the unedited versions. And you will also be able to join my 108-day meditation challenge and 108-day movement challenge, along with many other challenges and masterclasses. Now, one way to support the show is to leave a rating or review for this podcast, which you can do really quickly by glancing down at your phone on the Apple podcast app. Just go to the name of the podcast, click on that, scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see five blank stars. If you like this podcast, tap that star on the far right and you've left a five star rating. Thank you in advance for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who took that leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting in your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking your leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free. 
and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.